0: This is a cultic ritual from an Adventist perspective, not a commemoration of Jesus' finished work because Adventists don't believe His work is finished. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. Well, today we are launching into Fundamental Belief number 16. We are more than halfway through, Nikki. I'm so glad. (laughs) This one is entitled, The Lord's Supper. Now, none of this should have surprised me. I know completely well how Adventists celebrate the Lord's Supper, but somehow it took me by surprise. Because I haven't done it recently, that in the statement of the fundamental belief, they take up about half the space explaining foot washing. In a Christian church, we don't do foot washing as part of the Lord's Supper, it's never commanded. But it was interesting to walk through this chapter and see how they have connected these things. And I just want to share a couple of things I noticed before we begin. Within an Adventist paradigm, this doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Follows their doctrine of baptism, as we see, because last week we talked about baptism. Mm-hmm. Because, as this book, Seventh day Adventist Believes, states, baptism precedes church membership, while foot washing serves those who have already accepted Christ as their Savior. So, in other words, Adventists identify baptism as the right of membership into Adventism. They see that as becoming a member, accepting Christ, and they word that sentence, baptism precedes church membership, while foot washing serves those who have already accepted Christ. Now, the Lord's Supper, therefore, is the ritual that members practice as a sort of mini-baptism, and the chapter explains that, during which members contemplate their Adventist beliefs and confess their sins, remembering their guilt that nailed Jesus to the cross. In fact, in the same book that we're studying, the authors say this, During this ordinance, meaning the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, we may appropriately meditate on... What do you think? You would think Christ. Well, you would, but no. During this ordinance, we may appropriately meditate on our baptismal vows. Right there, they have made it very clear that baptism is their underlying requirement for salvation in the end, and that the Lord's Supper is about what you promised and committed to to become an Adventist. So, with these background beliefs in mind, we see that Adventism has appropriated even the Christian remembrance of Jesus' finished work and has twisted it into a cultic membership requirement, cementing members' loyalty by reminding them of their persistent sin and of their need for Adventism in order to be right with God. That's ultimately what they've done with this doctrine. But before we talk about this any further, I want to remind you that we love hearing from you. If you want to ask questions or make comments, please email us at formeradventist@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can visit proclamationmagazine.com to subscribe to our weekly Proclamation email magazine and to find links to our online articles and magazines. You can also find links there to our former Adventist YouTube channel and to this podcast, and you can donate by using the donate tab there as well. We would love for you to write us a five-star review at iTunes, or wherever you listen to this podcast, your responses really do help to spread the reach of the podcast. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram. But now, Nikki, I have a question. Okay. As an Adventist, how did you understand or experience the Lord's Supper? Okay. Well, I think my answer is going to
1: be slightly different from the answer I get from a lot of people. When mm-hmm. I bring up foot washing and the Lord's Supper, a lot of them just, ugh. Yeah. I didn't really participate in that until I was an adult, I was 19. I grew up with my mom. She wasn't a practicing Adventist. And when I would visit with my Adventist family, I mean, what are the odds that you're going to hit the 13th Sabbath when you only see them (laughs) a few times a year? So That's right. 13th Sabbath. My goodness. So it wasn't something that I had a lot to do with until I was older. And at that time, I was just really excited to be a part of a group, to be a Uh part of um, people to have, I mean, there, there were personal things going on in the background where I had, I was a part of my family in a way that I hadn't been for a very Mm -hmm. long time. And so I actually really liked the opportunity to go in and wash the feet of my younger sisters and to be with them in something that felt like, it felt like culture. It felt like, I don't know. It was, it it was special to me in a way at the same time. I felt completely guilty, like I was Mm -hmm. failing even at this, like Mm -hmm. I wasn't feeling guilty enough for all of my sin, or I felt so guilty for my sin, I didn't actually believe right because I should believe more that Jesus had forgiven me and just a lot of turmoil in that way. And I was also very confused about why such an important event that happened so rarely, why did people skip it? Right. Why was the parking lot empty? Why were there fewer people in the seats on that Sabbath? Absolutely, it didn't make sense to me because I really did believe that it was like a rebaptism, that it mm-hmm. was a, a clean start, a do over, a an opportunity to repent mm-hmm. internally. It wasn't confessional for me, out loud with anybody, but to sit and repent and honestly ruminate on my failings. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I didn't feel the dread that a lot of people feel, but honestly, thinking back on it, I kind of feel icky about it. So, it was like one more place in my Adventist life where I had dual reactions and dual ideas and dual beliefs about the same thing. Does that
0: make sense? It absolutely makes sense. In fact, this book is kind of full of dualism, and so I totally understand that your experience would have been dual, not just because of the beliefs, but because of your life. Yeah. But the way the beliefs are taught supports that dualistic feeling. Yeah, it wasn't wasn't Christian. It wasn't biblical. What about you? Well, I remember my earliest memories were of watching my mother sit beside me in church after the foot washing and seeing her very sad, even dour face. And I remember just the room (laughs) being filled with a sense of sadness and moroseness and almost depression. Mm -hmm. There was no joy and the foot washing was icky. So there was all that weirdness, plus making sure your feet were clean and hopefully your toenails looked okay. <laughs> there was so much stuff that had nothing to do with what Jesus did with his disciples. And right. I was taught that it was a mini baptism, mm-hmm. a cleansing and that it was necessary to do before taking the Lord's Supper because you had to have all your sins confessed before the Lord's Supper, which, of course, makes sense from an Adventist perspective because they are not celebrating a completed atonement. Right, Their entire lives are about remembering to confess sins so you're not kept out of heaven. And so, if you remember to confess them, Jesus can be up there applying his blood to them in mm-hmm. the books of record. So, this was just one more of those get it right, get your heart right, eat those symbols, which were a symbol of Christ, and I just felt guilty, just guilty and ick, Mm -hmm. just ick. And I don't know how to even explain the ick. It felt almost embarrassing, a little cringy, a little depressing, a little uncomfortable, like, hurry up and get over and get me out of here. Well,
1: and you know those empty parking lots, to me, indicate that a lot of people felt what you're describing. I think so. So, Colleen, you just told me before we started recording that you have participated in foot washing as a Christian, and I had never known that before. I would love to
0: hear what that experience was like for you. Okay. We were recently out of Adventism. It was in the early 2000s, and I was attending Elizabeth Enrig's Women's Bible Study, and so were some other former Adventist women who studied every Friday night together with us in former Adventist fellowship. And on this one particular weekend, we had a women's retreat. And as an Adventist, I would have never gone to a women's retreat. It was just too uncomfortable, too, oh my, you know, too much figuring out what people were wearing or thinking or who was sitting with whom. And, you know, there was just kind of a power struggle that nobody ever talked about among Adventist women. But I decided I was going to embrace everything I could in this new Christian environment because it probably would be different than all these corresponding things had been in Adventism. So, this woman's retreat was no exception. It turned out to be a remarkable weekend. And one of the things that Elizabeth provided on that Saturday afternoon was a room, a small room at the at the retreat center where we were, that was set up for people if they wanted to go and participate in a foot-washing service with someone. And she said, you can do this any way you want. It can be about renewing a relationship with someone. It can be about just thanking God for what He's done. It was a moment where we could serve one another if we wanted to. And these, I think it was three or four of us, former Adventist women, looked at each other and said, we should do that. We should go redeem this. (laughs) It was a little bit fearsome because, you know, walking into a foot washing room in an Adventist church always felt uncomfortable. But we went and it was set up. It was There was praise music playing in the room. And the three of us, I think it was three, took turns washing each other's feet and realizing this was remembering that Jesus had actually finished the atonement. <laughs> and this was completely different from ruminating over our past sins and hoping we were forgiven enough to take the Lord's Supper. It wasn't followed by the Lord's Supper. It was just foot washing. And I remember the three of us ended up crying and feeling like the Lord had shown us what the real point was. It Hmm. was serving one another. It was loving one another. It had nothing to do with beating ourselves to death with unconfessed sin that we were trying to get rid of. Hmm. It was an amazing experience. Wow. Wow. So, Nikki, why don't we read this
1: doctrine? Okay. So, this is Fundamental Belief 16, The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a participation in the emblems of the body and blood of Jesus as an expression of faith in Him, our Lord and Savior. In this experience of communion, Christ is present to meet and strengthen His people. As we partake, we joyfully proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. Preparation for the Supper includes self-examination, repentance, and confession. The Master ordained the service of foot to signify renewed cleansing, to express a willingness to serve one another in Christ-like humility, and to unite our hearts in love. The communion service is open to all believing Christians.
0: Okay, what raises red
1: flags in your mind with that? <laughs> well, of course, as I usually say, there are many things here mm-hmm. that have problems, but— as soon as I read the master ordained the service of foot washing, mm. I I immediately went online and looked up the word ordained. <laughs> <laughs> <gasps> because it doesn't actually say that in the Bible. No. An ordinance is a law or rule made by a government or authority. She's saying I say she because this does come from Ellen Absolutely. White, even though it doesn't say that here in the the summary of the belief. But they're saying that Jesus made it law that we need to wash each other's feet in preparation to be clean enough to be able to participate in the Lord's Supper. She absolutely says that. Yeah, that's not biblical. You're not going to find that in the text.
0: Nope. One of the things that I noticed, too, was that it is an expression of our faith in Him, our Lord and Savior. Well, in a sense, in a Christian sense, that is true, but... Actually, the Bible clearly says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, what we are proclaiming as Christians is Jesus' finished work of atonement, his death, where he defeated Satan. And they don't say that. Mm-hmm. They make this an expression of their faith in Adventism. So, go on. Well, also, they say in this experience of communion...
1: Christ is present to meet and strengthen His people. Again, this is almost a quote from Ellen White. And it's interesting, they don't mention her at all in the text. They have a few different books of the Bible, Revelation, 1 Corinthians, John, and Matthew. Those Mm -hmm. are their texts. Mm -hmm. Nothing of Ellen. And
0: they're almost quoting her here. Yes. Isn't that interesting? It's deceptive. (laughs) Yes, it is. And not unfamiliar at this point in the book. Right. Right. We could probably spend all our time just referring to the lines in this particular belief statement, but they go into more detail as we walk through the chapter, and the chapter reveals more and more of the way Adventists think. So, why don't we just walk through some of the parts of this chapter that explain this doctrine, and we'll talk about how it actually differs from what the Bible
1: says. Okay. You know, every time we start these chapters, their introduction kind of drives me crazy. Because they take liberties, they get very creative, they like to say what people were thinking and feeling, and they almost try to hook you emotionally to start you down Mm -hmm. their garden path. And they're talking here about the upper room, and they talk about the fact that no one wanted to perform the menial task of foot washing. Well, we don't know that. No. It doesn't say that. No. That may not seem important, but as a Christian, you learn that you don't write in the white space. Right. You don't decide that you know what people are thinking and what people's motives are. Actually, that kind of behavior is classic mental illness. Yes, it is. That's classic personality disorder when you start assuming other people's thoughts and motives and what's going on in them. Yeah. This is not something we're permitted to do in Scripture. We believe what the words of the Bible say, Mm -hmm. and we don't go beyond what is written. But when you have a prophet
0: who was shown what people were thinking, anything's permissible.
1: And it's clearly an example that's being followed, even by the writers of this book. And, you know, sometimes their own descriptions are only mirroring some of her
0: writings. Uh, Yeah, I found that to be true. They also say, right near the beginning of the chapter, the ordinances of foot washing and the Lord's Supper make up the communion service. Now, I think that would be a surprise to any Christian. Mm -hmm. The story of the Last Supper in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke it's in all three, tells only of Jesus taking the cups of wine at Passover and the bread from the Passover meal and saying, this is my body, this is my blood, which is shed for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Those three gospels do not even tell the story of foot washing. Foot washing is only in John 13. And in John, the story of the actual Last Supper is not told what Jesus' words were and how he commended this to them in remembrance of him. That's not told. So, it's very clear, if you read the the context of the Gospels, that these two events were never intended to be combined into one service. They were different accounts on the same evening, to be sure, but they were never intended to be practiced together as one event, the Adventist communion. Mm -hmm. This is something Ellen White did for other reasons.
1: You know, they put them together and they make it law and they claim it's a law that Jesus initiated. Yeah, But isn't it interesting that we don't have a single account in the New Testament of the church having a foot washing service. We have nothing written from the apostle Paul or Peter, any of them, That's about right. how to conduct it. There's no conflict around it. There's It just doesn't come up that's true.
0: Not once. No. And even in the book of 1 Corinthians, where Paul goes into quite a bit of detail with this unruly church about how they're supposed to practice the Lord's Supper, there isn't a hint of foot washing. Now, this book says, believers must confess and repent of all sin, including pride, rivalry, jealousy, resentful feelings, and selfishness before they can be in the right spirit to have communion with Christ at this deepest level. Nikki, this is just not in the Bible. This is guilt, guilt, guilt. Once again, we have an example of the Adventist leaders taking a biblical account and telling it from their perspective, from a human perspective, from the perspective of leaders of a movement who want to keep everybody in line, loyal to the church, or the organization. This is not seeing this event from God's perspective, but it's seeing it from human perspective and imagining what God would be thinking or wanting us to do. So, they say custom demanded that in celebrating
1: the Passover, Jewish families remove all leaven from their homes, for leaven represents sin. After its removal before the first day of the week of unleavened bread, believers must confess and repent of all sin, including in the list that you just read. So, they're connecting... The foot washing Mm -hmm. with removing the leaven from the home. Yes. And they reference Exodus 12 for that. Now, there's nothing in Exodus 12 that says that after they removed the leaven from the home, they all had to confess their sins. No, They only gave a few verses. I read the whole context. Mm -hmm. In Exodus 12, 17, it says, And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. And I just want to point this out. This is so fascinating to me. Their argument for the Sabbath mm-hmm. being ongoing is that God said in the Old Testament to the Jews, this is a statute or a sign between you and me forever yes. for all generations. That is actually a proof text that they use. Here... He says the same thing about Passover, and then Ellen decides Jesus fulfilled Passover so that statement about forever doesn't count. But when it comes to the Sabbath, they can't see that Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath.
0: It's inconsistent and illogical. And they use the same argument for the continuation of the Sabbath as the words of the Bible for Passover, but they say they're different categories.
1: Yeah, so I just want to point out they have an extremely inconsistent hermeneutic. It is all about shoring up Ellen White's visions Mm -hmm. and teachings.
0: And cementing the Adventist rituals so that the members are connected. This is a cultic ritual from an Adventist perspective, not a commemoration of Jesus' finished work because Adventists don't believe his work is finished. He's still up in heaven puttering around with the sanctuary and blood and sins and records. Mm -hmm. No, he's not. But for the Adventist, he is. And communion is just a part of remembering that. So, After this paragraph where they say the list of sins, internal sins one is supposed to confess during the foot washing, the little mini-baptism when they're washing away all the accumulated sins since the last mini-baptism, the next paragraph goes on to say, The ordinance preceding the Lord's Supper, meaning foot washing, fulfills the injunction that all should examine themselves so as not to participate in that meal in an unworthy manner. And they reference 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven 27 to 29. Now, Nikki, this is just one of those where I want to pull out my hair and say, really? <laughs> this reference to 1 Corinthians 11 has nothing to do with what Adventism has said they're supposed to do in getting rid of all sin before the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. Here is 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven 27 to 29, which is the reference they use in this book. These two verses say this, therefore, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Now, once again, that's a proof text, but the context goes back to 1 Corinthians 11 verse 23. And Paul is explaining that he received from the Lord this ordinance of the Lord's Supper. says nothing about foot washing, and he is talking to the Corinthians, whom he has already chastised just in the previous verses because they are eating the Lord's Supper, which was actually a communal meal in those days, in a way that's disrespectful and jockeying for position. And he has said to them, when you meet together, It is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. So, he is saying, you people are meeting together. And those of you who have more money— And more position and more power are pushing out the ones that you don't respect. And you're eating the food. And you're even drinking too much of the wine. And some people are going with nothing. And he says to them, Do you despise the church? Or are you just shaming those who don't have anything? Both of those are horrific in the body of Christ. They have no place in the body of Christ. So, with that background, Paul is then saying, Jesus gave me the Lord's Supper. He gave me this, that in the night he was betrayed. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. And then he says this, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He never says this is a symbol of your commitment to me. This is a symbol of your eating the word of God. This is all these things that the chapter says. This is a remembrance of his death. And that means something to believers because they are believers, because they've trusted that death. And that's something that's missing from this chapter. Mm -hmm. And there's no foot washing here.
1: Seems like a great place for him to teach foot washing if he's got people taking communion in an irreverent manner.
0: But it doesn't show up.
1: Right after that was one of the most upsetting sections to me. They say that the foot washing is a memorial of Christ's condescension. And I'd like to read this quote to you. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It's kind of long, but I think it's important. The ordinance of foot washing memorializes Christ's humiliation in His incarnation and life. Although He held a position with the Father amid celestial glory, He made Himself of no reputation taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. It was humiliating for God's Son to give so selflessly, so lovingly, only to be rejected by the majority of those He came to save. Throughout Christ's earthly life, Satan was determined to disgrace Him. To the utmost at every turn, what mortification it must have brought him, the innocent one, to be crucified as a criminal. Okay, so <laughs> I was so frustrated mm-hmm. with the way that they were depicting Christ. Yeah. Christ, of his own will, of his own initiative, humbled himself. Yes. Now, I get it. Humble, being humble, and humiliation have the same root word, but they are on the opposite ends of the spectrum. They yes. are. They are completely opposite of each other.
0: He chose to humble himself. He was not humiliated. And humiliation, I even looked up that word because this bothered me too. Humiliation carries with it the meaning that there are other people involved there are other people who see the shame and the bruised ego and the the being forced to become submitted it can mean willfully submitting to some authority in a groveling sort of position but either way you look at it Jesus was not humiliated he humbled himself he was not a victim we talked about this a little bit before
1: we started recording, and we remembered in Colossians it says that at the cross Christ put Satan to open shame, yes it was Satan who was humiliated that's right at the cross not right. Jesus they described Jesus
0: humiliated on the cross. I am so frustrated because at the at the bottom of this and actually I'm actually kind of thankful I had to work through why this was so cringy to me because I realized this is how they always referred to Jesus' death. I always felt this cringy guilt when I thought of Jesus' death as an Adventist, and I couldn't have explained why. But I was often told it was my sin that put him on the cross. Now, to be fair, I've heard Christians say that too. And in a very pragmatic sense, that's true. It's human sin that he took to the cross. But when Ellen White talks about Jesus and when Adventism talks about Jesus, they speak of him as somebody who— gave up his rights and to show us how bad we were, he went to the cross and did all this suffering for me. And I even heard people say, if he did all that for you, what should you be doing for him? You need to see what he did for you and give him back. Give him yourself. Give him your time. Give him your effort. If he did that for you, you think what you should be doing for him. It was always a if then. Mm -hmm. I was responsible for fixing the humiliation of Christ in some way. But Colossians... 2, 13 through 15 says this, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh... He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Nikki, that is the most amazing good news there's ever been. (laughs) Jesus took our sin in himself and fulfilled all the terms of the law, which he nailed to the cross in himself. And in doing that, he made a public display of Satan and his minions. He humiliated them. He put them to open shame. He had destroyed their weapon against us. He had fulfilled the law. And Ellen White consistently speaks of Jesus in terms of being humiliated, which involves someone else mocking and someone else putting him down. But she speaks of Jesus in the terms that the Bible speaks of for Satan. God humiliated Satan in Christ. Nobody humiliated Jesus. He humbled himself. He took our shame. He hung there publicly, a spectacle, but he was not humiliated and he was not condescending in the way she speaks of him. It was Satan that that was done to, not Jesus. And that text that you just read says that he forgave us
1: all our transgressions. It doesn't say He forgave us our transgressions, and then He forgives more transgressions in the heavenly sanctuary. Right. It says He forgave us all His transgressions on the cross. We don't need a mini-baptism. No. This is a once-for-all incredibly powerful moment, and it was of His own will. This was Him in His power. This was Him in His strength yes. going to the cross. This is an incredible Is it okay to say heroic moment? (laughs) For me, it is. I mean, this is an amazing moment of strength.
0: This is our Savior, our Creator, our Lord, our eternal Almighty God the Son, who's going to the cross to give us life. Humility is strength
1: under control. Correct. That's what's happening here. But the way they use that word, when they talk about Him being humiliated— they're talking about something being done to him and him being victimized. He is exactly. not a victim. He lays down his life, and he will take it up again. I just want to quickly share a story. Okay. I recently watched an Easter pageant that was performed in a Seventh-day Adventist church in the Southern California area. It was done in 2017. It's an older pageant. But I had some company in my home, and they wanted me to see something they had been a part of. And as I watched... The scenes of Jesus on the cross and him in the tomb, I was horrified to see Satan given front stage in this service, Satan standing there in a black hooded robe Mm -hmm. with a metallic face mask on, mocking God, mocking him on the cross, mocking him in the tomb. It was like he was the main player. right? And then when they resurrected Christ, it, it wasn't that that Jesus took up his life again. There was a parade of angels who came and stood at the entrance of the tomb while Satan was standing there just angry. And there's all of this angelic mm-hmm. detail mm-hmm. that we don't have in Scripture. Neat. So you have this puffed up, arrogant Satan who's at the cross mocking Christ and you have Christ humiliated on the cross in adventism but in the bible you have Christ in his strength in his in, in this incredible moment in history putting satan to open shame satan was humiliated he was not puffed up and feeling
0: good and angels did not call jesus from the tomb contrary to ellen white
1: right i knew as i watched this is a depiction of the
0: desire of ages. There is an angel worship quality to Adventism. And when you look at the way Ellen White treats Jesus, it just is kind of upsetting and shocking how many people say, oh, this is the most beautiful picture of the life of Christ that's ever been written, the most accurate description, the most whatever. And the fact is, she's writing sort of angel worship into this. She's writing a very big, important Satan, even though he's bad, he's a bad dude, but he's very big, very important, very powerful. And when you showed me a portion of that play, when Jesus came out of the tomb after the angels all lined up and were calling him out, not verbally, but you know, in practice, he came out looking like that meek and mild man who let himself be humiliated. And that's not the Jesus of scripture. Actually, as I was watching it, I thought, that's not my Lord. No. I think the reason this doctrine has been so upsetting to me this week is because it is describing a false Jesus, an incomplete atonement, and they're explaining that Adventists have to practice this in order to stay Adventist in good and faithful standing, in order to have communion with Christ, and all of it is honoring a pagan cultic understanding of Jesus. It's false. They have a powerful Satan and a humiliated Jesus, and it's the other way around. We have a powerful Jesus (laughs) who humiliated Satan, and when we as Christians take communion, we are remembering his death, where he nailed Satan's weapon to the cross, the law, and he redeemed us, and he put Satan to open shame. So, in the next section,
1: they talk about the fact that foot washing is a type of higher cleansing. They say, one who takes a bath is clean. However, open, sandaled feet soon become dusty and needed washing again. So, it was with the disciples. Their sins had been washed away through baptism. That takes us back to last week with their effectual baptism, where once you pass all of their requirements to become a candidate for baptism, and you're baptized after you have signed off on all the mm-hmm. vows, Yeah, now you're imbued with the Holy Spirit and you have spiritual gifts and you get to propagate Adventism to the world. Right, And that's how you're saved. That's how you're born again in Adventism. If right. you haven't heard that, go back and listen to last week. So she says, their sins had been washed away through baptism, but temptation had led them to cherish pride, jealousy, and evil in their hearts. They were not ready to have intimate communion with their Lord, nor to accept the new covenant He was about to make with them. Through the foot washing, Christ desired to prepare them to take part in the Lord's Supper. So because they had sin in them, they couldn't have fellowship with Him, and He had to prepare them, He had to clean them up again in order to get them to participate in receiving the new covenant. What happened to Ephesians 2? While you were dead in
0: your sins, Christ raised you to life. Never mind the context. She takes that foot washing out of context. In John, the story is told of Jesus washing their feet and telling them to wash each other's feet. This is an example of the Lord, the Master, serving his people. And he knows he's going to be leaving them, and he's commissioning them for their next job, which is to plant the church. And he's basically saying, do this to one another, Mm -hmm. serve one another as I'm serving you. This had nothing to do with being prepared for the bread and the wine. No,
1: the the message was, you are not greater than your master. And if your master will do this, you will do this too. This is the lordship of Christ. Yes. Yes. You know, then right after this, I feel like they're launching us into, it's kind of a punt Mm -hmm. for the sanctuary doctrine, for the investigative judgment. So they say, as we walk the Christian life, we fail, our feet become dusty. We must come to Christ again and let His cleansing grace wash away the defilement. However, we do not need to be baptized again, for he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. Foot washing as an ordinance reminds us of our need for regular cleansing that we are totally dependent upon the blood of Christ. Foot washing itself cannot cleanse from sin. Only Christ can purify us. So it's his blood that purifies us, right? Right. Down in the next section, Mm -hmm. they say, when the service is over, our faith assures us that we are clean because our sins have been washed away. When the service is over, by whom? By Christ. It is fellow believers who administer to us the symbols of Christ's ministry. And so this service becomes a fellowship of forgiveness. That might sound benign to someone who doesn't understand that we're going to be reading about Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary where he applies his blood
0: to our individual sins as we confess them throughout life. Yes, this is an indirect reference to the investigative judgment. It's code again. It is. It's Adventist code. And Adventists will recognize the words. Mm-hmm. A Christian reading this will not. No, they won't. So,
1: this is an opportunity for us to catch up
0: mm-hmm. on our confession. Right. Because if we don't have every sin confessed, that sin that we forgot can keep us out of heaven. Yeah. And they use the words of Christ
1: to Peter. In order to say this, they quote Jesus saying, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And then they say, No cleansing, no fellowship. Those
0: desiring continuing fellowship with Christ will participate in this ordinance. Yes. That was very upsetting to me. And that thing with Peter was so misrepresented to us as Adventists, I have struggled with that over the years to understand what Jesus meant. If it's not about like confessing and cleansing sin, what is he saying to him? And I see now that when Peter drew back and said, oh no, Lord, not me, he was expressing that cringing guilt like like I used to feel as an Adventist a lot, where I'd think, oh no, don't do anything nice for me. I don't deserve it. I'm too bad. And Peter was saying, oh no, I can't let you, my master, wash my feet. It was almost a false humility. It was almost a, a refusal to recognize that what Jesus was asking him to do was to submit to him. Submit to me. I am your master. I am here to save you. And I am going to wash your feet and you need to let me serve you because I am going to ask you to serve me in this way. And I don't need any false guilt or false humility trying to keep yourself aloof from this. No, you submit to me, and I will bless you for this. It had nothing to do with confessing his sin and forgiving him. It was allowing him to be washed by Christ's love and compassion and commission to go and be his servant after his death and resurrection. It reminds me of when Jesus
1: told them that he was going to go to the cross and Peter's like, no, we're not going to let that happen to you. And he says, get behind me, Satan, for you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. That's a good comparison. It's another picture of Christ saying, this is who I am. This is what I'm here to do. And all of your human false compassion or false morality, you need to put that aside and you need to submit to me. I don't need you.
0: You need me. You know, it was interesting when I was thinking through this, we were talking before the podcast and I realized that there's something about this passage that reminds me of Ephesians five, twenty-one, where Paul says, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, mm-hmm. for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And Jesus is here demonstrating to these men that he is the head of the church, which they don't understand yet because mm-hmm. he hasn't died Mm -hmm. but he is showing himself to be the head of the church, and they are to submit to him. And as wives, we talked about this when we went through Ephesians, we submit to our husbands as to the Lord, knowing he's the head of the church. And I may not understand the request that Christ is making of me, but he's asking me to let my heart be humbled before him and to submit to the care of him the Lord, and to the husband he gives me to care for me. This is a symbol, a similar symbol, where he is saying to Peter, you don't have a part of me if you don't let me do this. Submit to me. Trust me. Let me serve you. So then they move us into the Lord's
1: Supper. And they say, having received the assurance of being cleansed by the blood of the Savior, believers are ready to enter into special communion with their Lord. They turn to this table with joy, standing in the saving light, not the shadow of the cross,
0: ready to celebrate the redemptive victory of Christ. (laughs) After what we've just reminded ourselves of the fact that there is no completed atonement in Adventist theology, Adventists are just hoping That they have some redemptive victory of Christ applied to them.
1: Well, you know, they say that this doesn't happen until after they've participated in the foot washing. That's right. So, now this is like the the freshest, whitest slate they've
0: had in three months. And as Richard said earlier, when we were talking about it with him, he said, I always did feel like the foot washing was a little baptism, a mini baptism, and I was washed clean. And then on the way home, I'd probably poke my brother in the car and it was all done again. And it would be three months before I had my next washing. Yeah. Why did they wait so long in between if this really is effectual cleansing? good question. And they say, even in this book, that if you celebrate it too often, it becomes old and um, just ritualized. And I want to say, that's because you don't know the Lord. If you're really a born again believer, trusting Jesus's finished work, there's nothing ritualized and old about communion. But if you don't know him, it's a burden and it's inappropriate to do it. I I have to say that the way Adventism uses foot washing in connection with the Lord's Supper, requiring it before you take what they call the elements, it is functioning almost identically to Catholic confession. Mm -hmm. This is the Adventist version of Catholic confession. And like the Catholic organization, they don't have a completed atonement and Catholicism doesn't either. Catholicism requires people to practice these means of grace, which continue to keep them ready to be saved, prepared to be saved. You, they have to keep washing away their sins and reaccepting the death of Christ. There is no once and done with a celebratory remembrance of what He has done. It's much like Adventism, where it's a reconfession getting rid of everything, remembering everything, being prepared, taking those elements, and then hoping you can hurry up and get out of church and have lunch. You know, I've noticed that it seems tradition really
1: does replace logic Yeah, a lot of the time. I remember when I first left Adventism, I was talking to somebody about the completeness of the atonement of Christ, and I had explained that, well, I always thought that my sins were forgiven up to the moment that I came to Christ. And then I had to keep up with the, mm-hmm. with the repenting. And they said, well, think about that for a minute, because when Christ died for your sins, you hadn't committed any of them yet. That's such a great point. He died for you before even one of them occurred. So why is He not capable of having forgiven all of them in that one sacrifice? And I sat there and I thought about it, and I was so embarrassed because that was so logical. Yeah. But I
0: was so confused
1: by my tradition. I
0: was the same way. It was an overwhelming realization when I realized that all my sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven the minute I trust Jesus. He asks me to come to Him in confession when He reminds me that I have sinned because I still have a law of sin in the flesh, as Romans 7 says, but it doesn't stop me from being in communion with Him. It doesn't stop me from being born again. I can't be unborn when I sin. I just have to be faithful to trust him again and to say, you're right, I sinned, I agree with you, please show me how to trust you in the next temptation. So then they go on to talk about the meaning of the Lord's Supper,
1: and they say that the Lord's Supper replaces the Passover festival of the Old Covenant era. The Passover met its fulfillment when Christ, the Paschal Lamb, gave his life. Again, I just have to point out how arbitrary it is for them to decide that Christ fulfilled Passover, but he couldn't have possibly fulfilled the Sabbath. right? But this next sentence was the one that really irked me. (laughs) Before his death, Christ himself instituted the replacement, the great festival of spiritual Israel Mm. under the new covenant. So what they really mean, code. Mm-hmm. This is the old covenant with a new people.
0: Exactly what they're saying. And of course, once again, they squeeze in those words about spiritual Israel. They themselves believe themselves to be spiritual Israel, the inheritors of the law and the blessings. Mm-hmm. And they're not. But not the curses. But not the curses. No. There was something on um, under their heading, the bread and the fruit of the vine, that actually sort of amused me. But once again, it's this convoluted language that makes it hard to, to sort of cut through it all. It says, Jesus uses many metaphors to teach different truths about himself. And they're making the point here that the bread and the wine were metaphors of his body and blood. And then it says, He said, I am the door, I am the way, I am the true vine, I am the bread of life. And then they make this commentary. We cannot take any of these expressions literally, for he is not present in every door, way, or vine. Instead, they illustrate deeper truths. Well, Nikki, he never said, I am in the doors, I am in the ways, I am in those vines. He said, I am the way, I am the door. When this book says we cannot take it literally, well, I suppose in a physical sense, that might be true, but Adventism does not understand the spiritual reality of what happens when the Lord brings us to life, when we trust Him. He literally, spiritually, is the way. Mm-hmm. He doesn't just show us the way. Mm-hmm. He brings us to life with His life, places us in Him, Ephesians 2, and He is is the way. He is the door. He is the vine to whom we are connected, from whom we are nourished. He is the life. So they can say what they want about metaphors, and linguistically, we can make an argument that these are metaphors. But in a sense, they are real, and they are mocking that reality. And in
1: that same section, they explain why
0: the communion
1: wine is not fermented. Yeah. <laughs> Now, I had never heard
0: this argument. Did you know this, like, explanation? Well, it seems like I've heard it, but it was always sort of like, whatever. Okay. I I had heard that Jesus never drank fermented grape juice. I had heard that they had ways of keeping the grape juice fresh. I had heard all kinds of arguments. But the fact is that Passover celebrations have always used wine. And Jesus was giving his disciples the wine from the Passover meal. These linguistic arguments that they make are really ridiculous. The translators know when the word means grape juice. There's a passage in Numbers where it talks about the Nazarite vow. And it talks about grape juice and raisins and grapes it's a different thing from wine. And when the Bible translators translate the Greek into wine, it doesn't mean unfermented grape juice. The Bible just does not support that. So they say that leaven is how grape juice is fermented.
1: And they say that because they had to remove the leaven from their home, they must not have had wine.
0: <laughs> what a leap! Writing in the white
1: space. Yes, again, writing in the white space. Mm-hmm. So, after this, they have a quote from Ellen White, and she says, All church members should participate in this sacred communion because there, through the Holy Spirit, Christ meets His people and energizes them by His presence. Hearts and hands that are unworthy may even administer the ordinances, yet Christ is there to minister to His children. All who come with their faith fixed upon Him will be greatly blessed. All who neglect these seasons of divine privilege will suffer loss. Of them, it may appropriately be said, ye are not clean. So, they may say this is all just symbolic. But Ellen White is clearly saying that Christ is literally present and Mm -hmm. he's literally infusing people with energy and power. Yes, And that people who do not
0: participate or who neglect these
1: things are not clean.
0: That's what Adventism teaches, and the Bible never says that. The Bible says that as believers, we do this in remembrance of his death until he comes, and it points forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb described in Revelation 19 when he said, Jesus said he will drink the wine new with us in the kingdom when he's with (laughs) us. That's what this service is about. It's not about forgiveness. In fact, it's important because unbelievers are never commanded to do this service and should not do it. Right. Instead, they need to take Christ, not the symbols of his death. Mm -hmm. The symbols are the remembrance, the celebration that believers have as they think about their Lord who's given them this supper to remember his promise to them. It's like an engagement ring. Mm -hmm. Do this in remembrance of me until I do it with you in the kingdom. There was one more thing here that this book says, It says, this service proclaims that Christ is present through the Spirit till he comes visibly. And I just have to point out again that that's another one of those code sentences that reveals their Mm anti-Trinitarianism, their belief that Jesus cannot be personally present since he's had a body and that the Holy Spirit has to represent him. That's a heresy.
1: So here again, we have another fundamental belief that is just another brick in the path towards Ellen. Yeah. Toward her doctrines that are very unique to Adventism that come from her visions. We have the baptism last week, and now we have the mini rebaptism mm-hmm. this week. And it's going to toss us down the road to an ongoing human effort for sanctification in yes. order to qualify for salvation. This is not the
0: gospel of scripture. This is not truth. That's right. And if you have not really faced the fact that the Lord Jesus' work is done, that he's a seated high priest at the right hand of the Father, if you've not faced the fact that you are inherently dead in sin and need to be made alive and you need a Savior, then please consider what Jesus did when he went to the cross. He became sin for us. He nailed the law of commands to the cross in His flesh in fulfillment of its curse on human sin. He became a curse for us. He endured the wrath of God, and He died a human death. He was buried in the tomb and rose on the third day, and His resurrection life is our life when we trust that He has taken all the consequence for our sin and propitiated the wrath of God. If you haven't trusted Him, please do, and you can know true joy when you take the Lord's Supper because it will mean that you have life.
1: If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Don't forget to visit proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for our weekly emails with new articles every week and other ministry news. And please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram and join us next week as we look at fundamental belief number 17, spiritual gifts and ministries. We'll see you next week.